Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. And today we have been talking about some pretty intense and heavy aspects of women in the New Testament. And so now we get to be a little more lighthearted and talk about women in the early church. This will be part one of two episodes on this topic as we dig into women in the book of Acts and examples of female leadership and collaboration in the first century. Let's dig in. So as we get ready to think about and dive into more about women in the early church and where they were active and partnering in the gospel, I want to make a note about biblical translation. We've talked about this quite a bit of the differences in particular between the NIV and the ESV. And I think it's particularly important when you're reading Acts, especially to read from the NIV, because there's so many places in Acts that's talking about mixed gender settings and talking about congregations and groups. And the language there in the Greek is indicating that it's a mixed setting, but the ESV just translates it brothers or men. And so if you're only reading it in the ESV, without that in mind in particular, you're going to think, oh, it was only men who were involved with the church, who were involved with the apostles. And so even if the ESV is your preferred, maybe consider reading them side by side so that you are comparing and contrasting a little bit. But that's, I think, a pretty important note in Acts in particular, because there's so many places where men and women are together. It's important that we know they're together and they are worshiping together, praying together, leading together. And that is highlighted even more in the NIV. That's such a good reminder. And I think just a good note of that the Greek language invites that. Like it's not necessarily that people are adding something in, which I think because for so long it was just brothers it kind of feels like that like it feels like oh someone decided to get modern and add that in but actually it's going back to the original text to say it was gender ambiguous like it was it meant everyone and so we're going to be true to that rather than like updating it or something yeah that's super good even as you were saying that I realized in the past in earlier days of ideology I remember having that thought and absorbing that perception that is was sort of cynical and like, oh, the NIV is being PC or something and quote unquote gender inclusive, acting like they are adding something new and just being like, oh, we'll just say brothers and sisters to make everyone feel good. And I think that's such a key point. As translators, decisions were made in the past and now this is a decision that's being made to still reflect the text and the original language, not just to try to put people at ease or make people feel nice. Right. And so I love that it's actually like true to the text. It's a, it's a true moment of excavation, really. Like, let's get back to what really was there. And I think, yeah, just such a good reminder. Thanks, Heather. Mm -hmm. So a couple notes just about Acts in general and where it is in the salvation story. So Acts is short for Acts of the Apostles. That is the full title of the book. It is also written by Luke. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which is fun. And they're actually kind of fun to read side by side. They're not 
play side by side in the canon, but they are fun, like bookends of one another with the same author. And I think we'll see Luke's stamp uh, revealed and just like clear in the text because he does talk about women a lot and he is quick to highlight where women are involved and just what they're doing in the life of the early church. So that's just a fun fact if you didn't already know that he starts by introducing himself <laughs> and saying like I Luke I'm writing this book but for some reason I don't know that we highlight that very often or understand that Luke wrote both books so also there's kind of a narrative shift in the structure of acts where obviously the gospels are about Jesus and they need to be they should be Jesus is the main character <laughs> of the gospels because they're about him and his earthly ministry in the book of Acts, it starts to become a lot more diffuse in a way. It's about the gospel going forth. And that's actually the point is that there is no longer a singular main character in the life of the church. The point of Jesus ascending and leaving the Holy Spirit is so that the gospel would go forth and it would become a network of people and a network of leaders and believers and people all around the world who are knit together by the Holy Spirit and who are doing this work shoulder to shoulder and side by side. So you'll actually see that in the structure itself of Acts, that's about a bunch of different people. And it kind of hops around a little bit and follows Paul for a while and follows Peter for a while. And Paul col collaborates with different folks and then Peter collaborates with different folks. And there's a lot of just fun variety. And I think that's meant to be a real celebration that as the gospel is reaching new cities and communities and people groups, more people are then stepping into leadership and are being empowered to do so by the apostles. That's the goal and is the whole point. And then those people are leading. And then what's fun also is reading Acts side by side with the other epistles in the New Testament. We're gonna talk about this more in our next episode in part two, but Paul and others then greet the people that they worked with and met and brought to Christ and then empowered to lead. And we often ignore, I think, the greetings at the beginning and ending of letters because we don't necessarily recognize the names and it can feel boring or whatever. But Acts can really ground the epistles in real relationships and real stories and real people who encountered Christ through these missionary journeys and then who are spreading the gospel and leading in their communities. So I do think Acts should be a really good foundation for reading the epistles and that they are meant to be read side by side. So we're remembering these are the real people that Paul is ministering to and continuing to communicate with. So good. I think it's been easy for me at times to read Acts and because it does move around a lot, like kind of forget that this is just a glimpse of the story there and it's a really important part of it but that the story goes on from there and I think when we read the epistles side by side with that we see the ways that we're just getting a glimpse in Acts but God continues moving in those places and we get to kind of pick it up again in those letters but I think that's such a good reminder as we're reading Acts to remember that the story doesn't end there, that it keeps going in each of these, the lives of the community and the individuals that are mentioned, and that God continues to use them. We know that from church history, we know that from the epistles, and I think it's such a good reminder that these are just 
pieces of the stories that we're, we're catching. So the um, Acts really starts with the Ascension. We, we usually actually skip chapter one, um, but <laughs> Jesus is reminding them that he wants them to wait on the Lord and pray and um, that they will receive power to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it starts with that picture of exactly what you were talking about, that the gospel goes everywhere. And so Jesus, once again, fulfilling his promises. Um, so they're waiting and it's important that we get in the text who all is waiting. And so we know that it's the 11, that there's, um, also with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, and that the company of the people wasn't all about 120. So we know that there's in the upper room as they're waiting on the Lord, about 120 people, um, and that women are included. And then the day of Pentecost comes. Pentecost was actually a festival, like a feast day that Jewish people would be traveling for. So um, I didn't learn that for a very long time. So it makes sense when it later is talking about uh, people hearing the gospel in their own language. Like there are people coming from everywhere because it's a big feast day that they are celebrating in the temple. So when the day of Pentecost comes, they were all together in one place. And of course we get this picture of the sound like a violent wind coming from heaven, filling the whole house, tongues of fire, and everyone experiences it. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit enabled them. So there's clearly no exception. All of them experienced it. And we know that there's men and women in the room. And then um, there's, again, all these people are hearing the gospel preached in their own language, um, which it really, we, if you have heard this story before, it's so easy to just listen to it and be like, yep, heard that before. But it's so wild to think about what that experience would actually be like to be like, wait, that person looks like they're from this place, but I'm hearing it in my language. This it doesn't make sense. This would be, it says that they were amazed and perplexed and they asked one another, what does this mean? Um, and then Peter has this moment where he realizes what it means. And he says um, that this is exactly what the prophet Joel had talked about in Joel chapter two. Um, and that it says in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's saying, this that you're experiencing is that which we all heard was coming. And so they see the fulfillment there too of the reality that men and women 
are prophesying. And so I love this picture because it probably would have been wild for Jewish people coming in for a feast day to actually see men and women kind of together prophesying. You know, we started to talk about that in our last episode of like, that really would have been a crazy experience for the women in particular to be mixed in with worship and to have that experience. Obviously, a lot of them would have been experiencing that with Jesus and kind of that wall slowly coming down for them. But I love that piece of this, that they're hearing things in their own languages. They're seeing men and women like declaring the gospel together. It, it would have been a really wild scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that it's on the one hand, Jesus doing a new thing. And on the other hand, Jesus just expanding what God had always been doing and that Israel's call and part of their covenant and God's promise was that they would be a blessing to all nations. So that's being fulfilled here as Christ has ascended and then sent the Holy Spirit. And then that there is like somewhat of a new thing for sure of men and women side by side um, sharing together. But also, as we've seen, there were still glimpses of that in the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry. So it's mostly in some ways like democratizing or just expanding what God had already been doing. And sometimes we could make a mistake to think like this is a complete paradigm shift and nothing like it had happened before. It's mostly just hugely magnified things that had happened in the past in small on the small scale is now happening on a macro scale and how beautiful that is. And like you said, Jamie is so emblematic of Jesus being a savior who tears down dividing walls and anything that would separate separate us and create hierarchies is now eliminated with the coming of the Holy Spirit that now creates this one unified, equal network of believers. I think it's just so important to see that like they didn't have any difference either of their, like they didn't get any difference in power. No one in the room got like a little bit more than the other. Um, and that they all had like the same experience and the same encounter with the Lord, I think is really precious that there was such a, um, yeah, like an equalizing experience between all of them that I think that's in and of itself really powerful. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I'm actually, before we get into acts, I had one plan to talk about this in the episode, and I think now is the time to talk about it. I want to talk about baptism. And as we see from this, you know, a ton of people come to Christ and a ton of people are baptized. And this, I think, is so important for us to understand, especially as modern Christians, we tend to kind of take it for granted that, oh, we just get baptized and that's our expression of our faith and it's kind of no big deal. And really, baptism is a replacement for circumcision, which as you probably know, (laughs) circumcision was uniquely for men. It happens to the male body. Uh, And so in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So previously, circumcision was for men, and it was a sign of your place in the covenant community. And now baptism is the replacement of that. Baptism is the sign of covenant belonging and covenant membership. And we see baptism a ton in the book of Acts in particular. And then of course, like throughout now to this day, baptism is a huge part as a sacrament in the church. And I do think it's really worth elevating and highlighting that what, what once was only for men is now for both genders, is now for men and women. And that's just another dividing wall that Christ breaks down. And I love that Paul himself says, now you are heirs of the covenant promise. You are fellow heirs with Christ. Before, only men could inherit land with like a few key exceptions that we've talked about in previous episodes in the promised land. But before it was just men inheriting things. And now Jesus says, because we are all baptized into Christ, we are all fellow heirs. And that is a tremendous, beautiful inclusion of women, that now women are equals with men, that we're not excluded from or removed from access to the promise, either just because of our anatomy or because of our gender or a theology around that, that now we are fellow heirs with Christ with one another. I love that so much. And I think I, I think we just should talk about that so much more. Um, I feel like it's very rare to talk about that because we don't, we don't understand enough, like what it is for us to be a part of covenants. And I think that's why it's so important for us to look at that throughout scripture. And that like, when God invites us into that, it's a very powerful thing that God is saying, this is the sign of our union together and that he is then inviting everyone into that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really quite powerful. And I wish we were able to talk about it more. Um, and I, I think it just adds such, um, like a beauty to baptism. I, in some ways I would say we have almost even removed some of the the power of baptism. I feel like um, people are kind of like flippant about it almost. And I think for us to, to see like what an invitation that is, I think is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm going to get nerdy for a minute here about the Old Testament and just about the cohesion of God's story that the the celebration of Pentecost is celebrating the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai that the people received when they came out of bondage in Egypt. And so they're at Mount Sinai, God creates this, this covenant of the law. And when they're at Mount Sinai, the mountain is on fire with the presence of God. The mountain itself is smoldering and smoking with the fire of the presence of the Lord. And it is this symbol of God making a promise to be with his people and inviting them into covenant relationship. So that's what they were celebrating at Pentecost. And then here, as they're celebrating the receiving of the law and a covenant with God, all of a sudden they see the, 
the fire of the presence of God again, but now it's with them. Now it's resting on them. When they see it in the book of Exodus, they're terrified. And if any, even like an animal touched the mountain, it would die. And now here the fire is joined with them because it's within them. And they're receiving this new covenant of baptism of being heirs with Christ. And I just think that's amazing and so beautiful in the way that God is, again, building on his own story and fulfilling his promises and then expanding them to include even more people is just so lovely to me. Uh, I was going to say the same thing as you about the fire of God, that there's such a like <laughs> trembling of it. And I think that's still the case in the power of God, that there's still such a holiness uh, and that the power of God empowers us to live lives of holiness. But um, I, I just think there's such a difference there of the people actually say like, this is too much for me at an Exodus. Like we, we don't really want to deal with this. And so for there to be such an experience of like, it's not just the leaders or a few people who we're going to send to experience the fire at Pentecost, but rather like everyone gets to experience the fire of God is like, I think that is the exclamation point on like everyone experiences that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So beautiful. So we want to spend the rest. Oh, go ahead. One more quick thing about Pentecost is, um, when we see, even in the gospels where there's like 5,000 people mentioned, that's 5,000 men, um, and women and children. And they'll say that actually, which once again, in and of itself is pretty radical for them to say, we're acknowledging that there were also women and children there. Um, but in, at Pentecost is where like that changes. And so when we start seeing numbers in Acts, which we will see like the number of converts in a day sometimes, um, that those are now inclusive of everyone. And I think that is also just another expression of that, that everyone is a part of this in a new way. Oh, that's so interesting. I love that. That's really cool. I haven't, I've never noticed that, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So that's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, so we're going to read, um, about three or four different passages in acts and we're just going to have fun. We just want to see where women are present, where the apostles are ministering to women, where women are coming to the faith, where women are just active with the early church. So that's what our goal. So we're going to start with acts nine and there's a sweet story about um, a widow who dies and just a community of widows that I think we talk a lot about widows and the call to minister to widows and care for them and value them. And so this is just a nice expression of that. So I'm going to read Acts 9, 32 through 43. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas, and she was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. 
Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with the tanner named Simon. I was getting emotional. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that in my voice. That was just ah, so powerful and beautiful. Um, yeah, there's just so many sweet things to draw out of this. I love that Tabitha is known for her art as well, that for her craftsmanship, her craftswomanship, and that that's part of their grief is they're also just kind of showing off her work. <laughs> I think that part just stood out to me and was so sweet. <laughs> that they're grieving and they're like, this is our friend Tabitha. Look at all the cool stuff she made. She was so talented and so artistic. Yeah, it felt just so relatable of like your grief makes you celebrate that person and want like it's like they wanted him to understand like this is such a loss for us um and yeah I just think that scene is so precious of saying look at what she created look at what she did as we were with her um yeah it's it's really a precious scene mm -hmm. right and then I yeah I love that yeah, again, I'm still emotional about Peter raising her from the dead. Um, I think partly because I have recently been studying with students about the prophets Elijah and Elisha and how they they raise children from the dead multiple times. And it's actually pretty hard for them. It's a pretty extensive process. They have to pray three times and they have to like, um, like almost lay hands and like breathe onto the child to like almost infuse the spirit of God back into the dead child. And it's, I, it's very much showing the power of the Holy spirit, that this is a new era, um, that all he has to do is kneel and pray. And so that, that also stood out to me this time that the Holy spirit is moving so powerfully that it's actually pretty easy or just like, it's a one, a one time thing that he has to do. I just think it's so beautiful. He just kneels and prays and then he's like, Tabitha, get up. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why that's dragging me so much, but it's just so powerful and yeah, just really beautiful. Yeah. I think there's something about this that we should learn from. I think for me, we often see widows and you get the sense that like, because she's a part of a community of widows that she's probably a little bit older. Um, and that we don't value their lives as much. Um, and so I would say currently, if you would say like a widow died, like, I'm not sure that we would be rushing over there in the same way that Peter was. And that to me, it just speaks so much to the value that Peter saw in her life um, and the way that he was living into the call of the people of God to care for the widows. Um, 
but to not see her life as like something that's easily dispensable or something, but to, to say there's, there's more for you to do and there's more uh, for you to experience. And so like, let's, let's pray and Tabitha get up. Like there's, there's something about that to me that is a good reminder for us of the value of a, just a long, rich life. And that Peter saw that in that moment of like, this is not a dispensable life just because she's a widow. Yeah. Uh, That's so beautiful. Right. He's not like, well, she had a good run, you know, which I think is easy to say about people who might be, you know, in their, their later seasons of life that, yeah, I love that. He's like, let's bring her back. Like, I do think like God has more for her. She has more to offer to this community. We have more to receive from her. And yeah, I, I think that's so powerful and beautiful. And I, I think this is so important as it's showing them ministering to a community of widows and valuing a community of widows. And I like at the end, it said that um, in verse 41, he called for the believers, especially the widows and presented her to them alive that he kind of like calls her friends to the front essentially um, to restore their friend to them. And I, I think that's such a, a sweet expression of honor and recognition of the value of their friendship as well and the value of their community and therefore the value of their joy at being reunited. <laughs> I'm losing it. This is just so good. <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of sticking out to me because as we were preparing our episode about Paul's teachings on women in the church and looking at first Timothy, I was just continuing to read on in first Timothy four. And there's a lot of instructions about how to treat widows and guidance for widows. And honestly, some of them feel kind of harsh and a little bit like widows don't be gossiping. You better be doing a lot of good works. Don't just be idle and taking advantage of like, basically don't be welfare Queens and don't just be sitting around talking about other people's business. That's what it sounds like. It sounds kind of strange and like he's assuming the worst about them. I think that's the weirdest part about it. It He's kind of like, don't do all this bad stuff that I know you're going to want to do. Do good works to kind of earn your keep. It almost sounds kind of legalistic and strange. And so I do think this passage in particular is important to read side by side. If you come across First Timothy 4 and feel troubled by it in any way, that this is showing the real value that the apostles had for widows and for a community of widows and wanting them to experience honor and to experience comfort and enjoy and value even in what would be a difficult season of life. Yeah, that's so good. And I think points to like, that's not the story of all of the communities of widows. Um, so I think it could point, we talked a lot about how First Timothy is very corrective. So I think it could be like, basically them saying to the church that Timothy is leading, like your widows like are different than the other widows. Like the other widows are really, you know, living it up. They're celebrating each other's work and these widows, not so much. Um, so I think- <laughs> it kind of draws that contrast even of like, oh yeah, this is perhaps more common 
of a community of widows and and that that's why it's corrective there Mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good point one thing that was really sticking out to me that I think might be a little like niche but I think if you've experienced any harm from like a healing ministry or a ministry that actually functions in the power of God. Um, like not everyone stewards the power of God well. And so I, I love that when he ministers to this widow, he takes her hand and helps her up. And I think we've seen pictures of people who, you know, in their zeal, are a little bit rough with people as they're praying for them. And, and I've seen that in different communities that I've been a part of. And it really is just like a misplaced zeal for the most part, I think. Um, but I love the tenderness that we see of like, he's really embodying the power of God to both, both in the way that he's able to experience resurrection, like he's able to minister in that way, but also that he's able to embody the heart of God. And I just think this is a really beautiful example of that. Um, And so I would hope that if someone is listening who has had kind of that experience of a negative um, ministry of a healing ministry or a power ministry in that way, that this would be a good example of like, that's, that's not God's heart. God's heart is to speak to a widow and then take her hand and help her up and like help her get into the land of the living again. Um, and I think there's something really just very sweet and kind to me about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. That's a good note. Okay. Moving into, we want to read in act 16, the conversion of Lydia, Jamie, would you want to read that for us? And I can kind of set it up. So we're going to be in act 16, 11 through 15. And then we'll kind of, we'll show again, verse 40, because there's a couple different mentions of her. Um, so we're continuing in all the missionary journeys. Um, we were just reading about Peter. Now this is going to be about Paul and um, him traveling with other people with Silas. So they are in Philippi and again, just rooting things in the wider new Testament the book of Philippians <laughs> is written to all the different, several different people come to Christ in Philippi. So Lydia is going to be one of several folks that are converted, um, but she would be also among the people that Paul is then writing to in the book of Philippians. So just to like, keep that in mind next time you read Philippians. So Jamie, whenever you're ready, Acts 16, 11 through 15, and then verse 40. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. She persuaded us. I think that's sweet. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on um, at the end of the chapter. 
After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Awesome. Yeah, so there's so many things that we want to name in this story. It's fairly short, but I love it. So first of all, I love that they go to a place where they're assuming they're going to meet people praying, um, which they do, and it's all women, and they don't just bail. <laughs> I think that yes. sounds silly, but it's worth noting that we've talked about this many times that they're not like, it's only women here. Mm, maybe not worth our time. They're like, great, let's share about Jesus with these women. So first of all, I just think that the act of them seeing that as a really valuable use of time and an important audience is really significant and shouldn't be overlooked. And it doesn't seem like they're like catering their message or like, oh, now we'll give the women's message, but that they're <laughs> declaring the gospel in the same way that they do in every place that they go and inviting people to come to know Jesus. And I think, um, again, that, that feels kind of silly to say, and also feels important. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. So then it's describing one woman in particular named Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth. So that means she is essentially a wealthy businesswoman that to deal in purple cloth was kind of a high roller <laughs> um, industry. It was a pretty expensive uh, luxury, luxury goods, essentially. And so for them saying that is indicating that she is a woman of pretty significant resources and wealth. And I also love the language about her converting where it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So I think that's really sweet just as a a small observation that it's not just because, oh, she was persuaded by the perfection of their speech or something like that, that it's centering the Lord and that the Lord wanted her in the kingdom and the Lord wanted her to be a leader, I think, because as we see, she then opens her home to that, to Paul and Silas, and then to the entire local community of believers. It says like brothers and sisters were meeting at her house. And so we might need to do a little bit of excavating here because on the surface, especially to our modern eyes, it could seem like maybe she's just hosting them in her room, <laughs> like that she has a, a, a multi-purpose room <laughs> that they can meet in, or she's like making snacks for them or like, it's like a bed and breakfast of like, you can stay with me. And I think there's ways where we can actually kind of diminish or demean the the extent of what she's offering. And really she is leading. Um, it doesn't mean that she's the only leader of the church in her home, but that was just a pretty common format and a pretty common thing that especially um, as churches were young, as they may have encountered persecution in different places and they needed to be able to meet in private homes, that the person whose home they were meeting in was kind of in charge and at least was coordinating and managing and, um, gathering everyone. And so I do think we should see her as a church leader. And one other thing too, to give us that indicator, it says that she's baptized along with the members of her household. And we actually are going to see that in this exact same chapter when Paul and Silas are freed from jail by the Lord and they preach to the jailer and he comes to Christ. 
in verse 34, it says he came to believe in God, him and his whole household. So we have these this exact parallel language about someone who's the leader of their home. And when they come to Christ, the other members of their household come to Christ with them and are baptized with them. And so whether Lydia is married or not, we don't know. It's possible that she's not. Um, but either way, she's being pretty clearly identified as the leader of her household and is therefore then leading the church that meets in her home. Yeah, I. it's hard for me to not get a little snarky about her being the leader of her household, um, <laughs> pointing to our episode about biblical marriage. But um, I think it's important for us to even recognize our Western lens as we're reading this, that we don't often have house churches right now. Um, though I think that's a growing movement, but like for us to say that something flippant is also to diminish the work that's happening right now around the world. And it's such an important like reminder for us to have a global perspective of the church, because right now there's still people in the church in China, the church in Iran, like there's women opening their homes. Actually, the church in Iran is a great example because there's so many women leaders there right now, which is a wild uh, shift in just the way that the kingdom of God turns everything upside down, that in a country that doesn't honor women, that would be the leaders of the church. Um, but they're opening up their homes in the same way and building an underground church network. And it's thriving. Like the, the church is growing in such a powerful way. And so I just think it's so easy for us when we shrink our worlds to just be the American church for us to then read this passage. And it, it just informs us so much. But if we're thinking about the global church and knowing about the people right now who are risking their lives to have house churches, then we begin to see Lydia's story in just such a different light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a huge point that we are so conditioned in the West to think of church as like highly structured um, in a separate building, <laughs> you know, like there's so many things that we just assume and those things aren't bad. So we're not saying that it's this either, or it's just differences of in some ways access and longevity. Um, and so we've just, you know, had access to churches and the ability to build churches and worship publicly for a long time. And then a lot of access to patriarchy <laughs> and like the opportunity to kind of entrench that. Um, and I think, I think it's just telling that they're sort of starting with a clean slate and this is how they do it. And I do just think that's really important that here in the beginning, as they're figuring it out, as they go, this is what they do. And that women come to Christ and that's seen as a really positive, important thing. And that then women who are prominent in the community, who are obviously leaders in the community and have a lot of resources to share, are able to offer them to this young church and offer their leadership and their resources in a really crucial way. I hope this doesn't feel like belaboring the point, but I think I'm like intrigued by, I wonder what made Lydia know that this is what she could or should do. Like, had she maybe heard wind of like, there's, there's some house churches starting, like people are beginning to follow this savior or 
like in the so it says she was a worshiper of God so that probably means she was a worshiper of Yahweh um on some level um they're in kind of a strange place for that but I just am like is she also recognizing like that they are prophets and leaders because in the in the Jewish community like you would have inviting the prophet into your home would be a really significant thing. So I don't know. I'm just like, I wonder how she even knew to say, come into my home and like have this be, it it feels like a very significant invitation for her that it's not just about like, oh, you look tired. Um, but that she's inviting them into her home in kind of a significant way. And it makes me curious, like, what was that? Was that just the fact that the Lord opened up her heart? And so she began to be moved by the Lord in that way, or had she caught wind of like the house church's beginning, or I don't know. It's such a fun curiosity for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And maybe this will, this is maybe risky in reading between the lines, but what if she invited them to stay, which as I'm thinking about the prophets, the prophet Elisha is hosted by a wealthy woman. The Shunammite woman um, is what, how she's referred to in second Kings. And she like makes a room for Elisha in her home with her husband. Um, Cause she's a woman of means. And she like wants the prophet to have a place to stay when he's preaching and ministering in the region. So maybe Lydia is thinking about that, about that woman. And this is just speculation. So take it for what it's worth. Um, I wonder if the, the apostles, while they were staying with her, were like, hey, you could host the church here. Like, this is actually, this could be really great. And you have resources and this is something we've done elsewhere, et cetera. Like, as we're thinking about how would she know to do it, maybe she would have thought of it on her own. And that's very possible. It's perhaps more possible that they would have encouraged her to do so because <laughs> they're the ones that are planting churches everywhere and are seeing mm-hmm. how it's being done and how it's working well. And so it would make sense, at least, that they would empower her and encourage her to do it because they've seen it elsewhere and it's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's important to think about like, we what we have is that she invited them into her house and like that they are, you know, they go. And I think it's easy again for us to just assume like, oh, she just wanted to like cook them a meal, but they're, they are relational people. I'm sure they had meals as well. We clearly get that from the early church and also like they're planning churches. So they are going to be discipling this new convert, especially one who has the capacity to lead Um, And so, yeah, I just think it's important for us to think about, like, they're not just hanging out at her house, like they're teaching her, they're equipping her. We see that that's how it's done um, even later in other stories, um, like Priscilla teaching, like she brings people into her home to teach. And so I think for us to just continue to emphasize that she is not just hanging out, like having snacks at her house, but that she's being discipled by them coming Mm -hmm. into her home. Exactly. And we know from context clues, she's rich. She doesn't need to be making food for them. She has servants to do. (laughs) (laughs) When talking about her household, that usually would mean family members and servants. 
Um, and so I also think it's very possible that, you know, she's having other people make them food while they're talking and while she's being discipled. Again, these are context clues, but they are based on real information. You know, this isn't wild speculation. Um, and at the very least, they obviously don't discourage her from leading because they come back later and they see that the church is meeting in their home and they're just like, great. And they all experience mutual encouragement from that. So it's not that they're like, oh, actually, now that you're kind of up and running, you need to have a man that's leading this. <laughs> it just says they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. So clearly they're like, keep doing what you're doing. This is awesome. <laughs> yes, that's a good, good point. <laughs> All right. So we love Lydia. She's a real shero. We're going to read just a few simple verses um, that we don't need to unpack tremendously, but just that are helpful to continue to show the presence of women in early missionary journeys in the early church. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses from Acts 17 that are about um, just different preaching and people converting. So Acts 17, I'm going to read verses four and then verse 34. So in verse four, it's talking about them in Thessalonica. So again, letters to the Thessalonians are written then to these people. So they're preaching in Thessalonica and it says in verse four, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So I love that they're just naming. Here's a lot of people that came to Christ and it's important to note that a lot of prominent women also did. And then continuing in their different missionary journeys, now they're in Athens and it ends the chapter in verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So I think part of what's fun here is we don't always have people named. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of crowds <laughs> coming to Christ. And so that's fine. That's not a bad thing. There's a lot of men who come to Christ who aren't every single one of them named. Uh, but I just think it's special and unique that they're pointing out multiple times, several women came to Christ, that's important, that's significant. And here's some specific names of women that came to Christ. And I definitely think in light of our last couple episodes about what Paul is talking about, it just kind of further reiterates the historical context that we were setting up of people coming out of recent pagan worship, that it says this woman named Dionysus. So she's mm -hmm. named after the goddess who was a member of the Areopagus, which is, you know, the public marketplace and just the public worship of pagan gods. So she was an active idol worshiper, pagan worshiper, has now come to Christ along with other women in that region. So I just think that that's just nice and helpful reminders. And I think reinforcement of the way the picture we've been trying to paint of the that time period and the cultural moment that they were in and the people who are coming to know the lord i love that we get a picture of like widows who would have been kind of poor women probably and women of prominence and so we start to get this picture of like the early church is really um diverse uh significant 
level of prominence and also like a community of widows. Um, and just basically these are like leaders in what would have been like almost their university at that time. And so uh, just as people who have cared and loved about college students for mm -hmm. a long time, this feels really precious to me because it's like these brilliant women who are in a place that's very significant where there's like a lot of buzz and they sense something different about the gospel and I think are able to like say yes to that um, as a result. And that I think that's just, I love that we know their stories. We know a little bit about their history. And again, that this is just a really small moment in their story. And so I think it's kind of, to me, when I hear people named in Acts and in the letters um, that Paul writes and others, I hear it as like an invitation of um, kind of, you probably get the sense that people know who they are. And so they're probably like, oh yeah, I think I met her on my last like journey. And, um, and I think it's such uh, a fun thought of like their stories would have been known and, and learn, like you could learn about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as we're reading about the different types of women who are being reached by the gospel and who are being included sounds an awful lot like someone else we've talked about sounds a lot like Jesus <laughs> and even when we talked about in Luke 8 where it gave this rundown of women who were disciples of Jesus who were supporting him it was a very similar range of women who were affluent and influential and women who would have been poor and marginalized and and, and women in between and I very much think this is the apostles following the example of Jesus and who they saw Jesus reach out to, because they would have been firsthand witnesses. They would have been right there the whole time, every time. And they learned from the best. <laughs> they learned from Jesus. This is what it is to share the love of Christ and to share the message of Christ and who it needs to go to. And we're going to just keep doing what he taught us to do. And you get a sense of, the fact, just like you're saying, like that they live into what they preach. And so we get in different places where they are really clear that God does not show partiality, both in the sense of like an ethnic background, but also it, it rebukes the idea that we would like favor the prominent women only, um, but that we also should be caring for the widows. And so there's parts in different letters where you can tell that some people started to get you know, a little excited about the wealthy people coming to the Lord and they're rebuked for it. And I think it's important to see that the apostles, like they could have done that too. They could have only ministered to the prominent people and we don't get a sense that that's what they're doing. Yep, exactly. Okay. We have one more story for this episode. Again, there's a lot that we're still going to get to next week about Priscilla, if any of you are big Priscilla fans and you're like, I haven't heard her name yet, yet, <laughs> don't worry. It's because the, there needs to be an even longer episode devoted to her. Um, so we're going to wrap it up or we're going to land for now in Acts 21. And there's an interesting kind of aside here or like story that might feel kind of small that I think is just giving us a glimpse into their general life. And again, their general 
just conduct as the early church and format. So I'm going to read from Acts 21, and I'm going to read verses four through nine. So he's, Paul's getting ready. He's um, trying to make his way to Jerusalem and has had a bunch of different issues. And so he's kind of landed um, at Tyre where their ship had to unload and they've been having a whole bunch of trouble. So picking up in verse four, he says, we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our journey to Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, Ptolemus, <laughs> something like that, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So we're getting just multiple glimpses of the activity of women in the church. And to me, verse five was just really sweet and just warmed my heart because Paul's just been going through it and they're praying for him and they're trying to give him guidance. And he's like, okay, I think I need to keep going to Jerusalem. They all go out with him and pray together before he leaves. And here again, it, it matters what translation translation you're using because the ESV will just say the brothers went with him to pray. I know Jamie just flinched. <laughs> exactly. Um, and this is so much better and so sweet because it says wives and children. And I love the picture of the children coming to pray with them and that they're all praying together. And even as you mentioned in our previous episode, Jamie, that like children weren't always elevated until they could work <laughs> and like produce more. Um, and Jesus gives the example of welcoming children, of connecting with them and affirming them and blessing them. And I love that that's now part of the early church, that they're like, we're going to go pray for our leader and our pastor. Let's all do this together. Let's have all the women come and let's have the children come and all pray as families and as a community. That's just so beautiful and such a sweet picture. As you were saying that, I just, I love that idea that they, the children were a part of that. And I, I think about what that would have done to form them. I think sometimes we almost like protect children from like learning about missionaries currently. Um, and I think there's something to like, just being a part of a commissioning at a young age and saying like what that would do for them to imagine uh, being a part of the spread of the gospel. Um, but I do, I love this picture of families coming together and, and that there wasn't like, they, you get the sense that everyone cared, that it wasn't just like, mm -hmm. you know, men dragging their families along, but that they all had had some sort of experience with him in order to care about sending him off. And I think that's powerful that it wasn't just like a segregated experience and that like the men are going to be the ones uh, sending them off, um, but that everyone was a part of it is really beautiful. Mm -hmm, exactly. And they weren't like, well, my husband is our representative. And so if he's there, mm -hmm. I don't need to be, which I think is something that we often have assumed in, you know, more extreme, heavily patriarchal congregations or denominations. Um, and I just love that it's like, it's important for everyone to be here and everyone gets to speak into that and 
and pray as a, as a unified body. And yeah, so I do think it would have been a pretty significant paradigm shift from what they would have been used to perhaps beforehand. And I just think is a beautiful example of them living into this gospel family of what it looks like to be following God as a family and as the family of God all together, you know, like that they are the family of God around Paul and that then as nuclear families as well, they are embracing this new order of everyone being valuable and important and having a role to play in the community of faith. Makes me just appreciate Paul as a leader in some ways, because he was basically a Pharisee at the time um, that of his conversion. And so he would have not just had like a tradition around women, but be very like heels dug in about women not being a part of worship. And then as he experiences Jesus and comes into this conversion experience, to me, it just speaks of what that conversion has done for him. Uh, What it has been for him to walk with Jesus and be a part of the spread of the gospel is a really significant shift in this particular area of like having all the families come together. And I think that it speaks to me of really what it does when we allow the Lord to transform our hearts, that we would be people who are really changing the way that we live and embody community in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful because we get the sense that this is something Paul values because he could say, oh, they don't need to come. Like, let's just have the men come. Like, doesn't have to be a whole thing (laughs) or like they'll (laughs) distract from it because they're supposed to be silent. You know, like we don't see that. And again, I think this is yet another place that's important to read alongside Paul's other teachings that he's obviously welcoming everybody being there and everybody praying over him. And that like, as he continues in that journey that the other people are a part of it as well. So when they land um, in their first spot, they are greeted by brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. And then when they reach Caesarea, they are in the house of Philip and that it, it matters to him that his daughters who are prophesying are there as well. Like it could, it could just not include that verse, but Paul tells the story in a way that makes sure to include, like I stayed with Philip and his daughters who are prophesying. And I think the fact that Paul is telling the story to Luke in that way is in and of itself like quite a statement and then the fact that this is a part of the church that philip is evangelizing and now his daughters are prophesying and that they are ministering together um and that obviously he there's no commentary on that of like they were prophesying but we made sure that they stopped or something like (laughs) We told them we weren't allowed to do that. (laughs) It's just like, listen to this awesome stop in Caesarea. When we got there, we got evangelists, we got prophets, we got, we got it all at that church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I hope that you've seen from just even what we've done today, and this isn't all that there is, that it was just pretty common and expected for women to be involved, for it to be brothers and sisters, 
for women to be a focus of ministry and then to be part of ministry as well. So it wasn't just all targeted at them coming to know Jesus. I like evangelism only. Then women are part of ministering to the apostles and then also leading and, and being active in the faith and in their church community. So I just think all of this is so important to paint a picture that again, needs to be side by side with other epistles with where Paul talks about women being silent, because that's just not what we're seeing in the early church. And so there, as we've been saying, there just has to be more to it than that. Um, and here we're getting this picture of, I think, tremendous value and affirmation and collaboration. That's so good. Yeah, I really hope that even in those places where it's just one phrase or just one verse that we start to see that there's a reason that those verses are included, that there's a reason that these women are mentioned and that it's almost as if it's commonplace in a really good way, that there's something really beautiful about their mentioning. And also there's not a really lengthy experience because it's not um, particularly unique. Um, in the sense of the, the early church was just functioning with men and women, both experiencing the spiritual gifts and living into them. So I hope that that has been an encouragement to you as you've listened along, that you've seen parts of um, maybe your story reflected of what it's looked like for you to experience the Lord and an invitation to find your own place in God's story as these women have. And so thank you for listening. We do love to hear from you about what stuck out in the episodes, what you saw in a new way and what was uncovered for you. So follow us on Instagram at Excavate Podcast and on Facebook. Share your thoughts with us there. We love to hear them. And we'd love for you to join our Patreon community as well as a place to continue to support our content and, um, and join that community over there. So thanks again for joining us and uncovering your place and God's story.